carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Jeremiah Rowe. And I'm Bella Deshantz-Cook. Today, we're talking with Lauren Buita, founder and CEO of Girl Security. Lauren worked in law and national security before she began focusing solely on equity and diversity issues across the entire security landscape, which includes cybersecurity, as well as more traditional national security roles. Girl Security is doing such important work to bring more diversity to the space. And let's just say this right now, we need it. This is a really important conversation that everyone working in the security industry needs to hear. But first, here's a quick word from our sponsor. We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsource platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. And now here are your hosts, Bella and Jeremiah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lauren. Thank you for having me, especially on a Friday. I appreciate it. What inspired you to start Girl Security? Yeah, a couple of things, really. I kind of had three reasons for starting Girl Security. The first was I was a young woman in national security a long time ago. Um, and I was one woman among a few women and lots of men, oftentimes, in every room. Um That wasn't terribly surprising. I worked construction through college where I was also the only woman. But I think what struck me about national security is that when you've gone through schooling and you show up in a room with professional people, you don't expect inappropriate comments or behavior. So I had a lot of that in my early career that really actually derailed my career. I had one boss in particular. And so certainly that was a really challenging moment in my career early on and one of the really foundational reasons for starting girl security. I didn't want another girl or young woman who was really passionate about this field to have that type of experience. I would say the second reason was 9-11, you know, like many, I guess we're called geriatric millennials nowadays, but um, 9-11, I was a junior in college and, you know, I wanted to do something like most young people. And so national security was something that I stumbled into, but really didn't understand exactly what it was. I didn't understand that it was this really specific decision-making arena, this very powerful political realm. And so I wanted to create something for young people that would simply explain what national security is. And then the third reason is my brother was deployed to Iraq during the early part of the war. And having had personal experience, yeah, of writing letters back and forth and realizing the ways in which I what I was seeing was kind of the decision-making part and what he was experiencing was the actual impact of the decision-making made me realize that perhaps our national security um, is off base in some really critical ways. And so those were really kind of the three primary reasons for starting the organization. Um, probably 15 years too late, but here we are. I don't think that there's any too late. I think the fact that you know, you jumped into this and got it started. I think it's I think it's wonderful. We need more diversity. We need more people that can collaborate based off of different experiences and backgrounds to make these decisions. Yeah, I agree. So you talked a little bit about your background in national security. Um, we are, of course, uh, a couple of cybersecurity nerds over here on this podcast. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us specifically how cybersecurity fits into the girl security mission. 
Yeah, it's funny. Um, when I started Girl Security, I didn't want to kind of stick in one arena of security because actually I started out really focused on early in my career, looking at national security law issues, so many of which were cyber focused around the Patriot Act and privacy and balancing you know, civil liberties and looking at the types of regulations and policies that were being put in place as part of a counterterrorism strategy. So when I started Girl Security, cyber was like first and foremost in my mind. Like everything is a cybersecurity issue. It's ubiquitous. I mean, it's like national security. And so rather than focus on the technical side of it, which I do not have a technical background in, we really try to supplement all of the awesome technical training out there by doing more of the kind of analytical side of it, as well as the decision-making side. So really trying to frame for girls how national security decisions made in the cyberspace have all of these kind of different impacts for how they work and live. And then to get into some of the nuts and bolts of law and policy, you know, kind of that multidisciplinary approach. But we do also give them a balance of kind of skills-based training. So we do things like ethical hacking, open source intelligence, uh, cyber wargaming, things like that. So we bring in the skills-based training, but we really try to frame the issues for them so that they understand how all of these parts collide and result in some of the things that we're, we're seeing today, which is not a whole lot of progress, in, at least in some areas. Since I've been working as a, as a woman in cybersecurity, I've tried to do what I can to engage with younger women because I, I'm seeing, unfortunately, some of this, the same things that, that you experienced. And I think it uh, instilled a little bit of passion in me, I, I think similar to you, where I, I want to do what I can to help. A lot of the time, the conversations that I have with young women who are interested in this field, the questions that they have aren't like, what is, how does cybersecurity work? How do I program? It's like, how do I work in an office? What does this mean for the world? Like, how how does cybersecurity change the world? And those are questions that when I was younger, at least, I didn't have a resource for. So it's interesting to hear you kind of focus in on those areas that I am also observing people wonder about. So you talked about trying to engage with with younger people. What age groups specifically are you trying to reach in girl security? And how do you connect with girls who might need the support most? So our program really engages at the upper high school to early undergraduate with respect to our skills-based training, but our learning piece, so we work, we have kind of learning modules can be from middle through high school ages. So I think for us, you know, when we when I started the organization, it was very much just going into schools to understand what young people were learning about national security, of which cyber is a piece of that. And what I learned was it was very little Um as I think probably you would guess, national security is a very partisan issue, even though it shouldn't be. And so it was really how do we kind of reach the girls that we know we want to reach, which are girls from certainly like where I grew up in the Midwest, where I didn't have any access to that type of opportunity, but more importantly, girls from underserved communities whose experiences we feel as an organization would most benefit our national security understanding, especially as we talk about equity. So the learning modules that we create are in the classroom and they're accessible to middle through high school, as I noted. And then the fellowship program that we started, which is skills-based, is open to all girls. And so we really mindfully work in local communities to build that relationship through the school program, which then kind of excites the interest of girls that then onboard into the fellowship program as part of the, the training piece. And then in addition to that, we have our mentor network. So kind of 
to your point about the questions that girls and young women asks there, it's a balance of like practical questions of like, how do I, you know, structure my resume to, I think I'm interested in, you know, counterterrorism or whatever it might be. How do I go into this career path? And so our mentor network is really, I feel like the core of what we do because it creates this really safe space to ask questions that maybe in a professional space you wouldn't want to ask. And even for girls and women who kind of cycle out of the mentor program, they tend to stay in to mentor others. And then it kind of creates this lateral and, you know, network of support that you can leverage throughout the course of your career, which um, I don't know. I'm often asked, could you do one without the other? And I don't believe so. I think having the the skills-based piece is critical, as critical as the mentoring piece. And I think the in-school learning piece is as critical as the fellowship piece, because if kids don't know that these things are on the menu for them when they're leaving high school, it's really hard to think about how to engage them at the undergraduate level, especially in male-dominated spaces where they're they're not even reading women's scholarship or, or sometimes seeing women professors well. Building that community that you just talked about and building that support and building that trust. Trust is important. Building that trust around how people can um, leverage each other to get into these spaces that they wouldn't otherwise have access to is so important. And I love that. You had mentioned something about equity, and I'd like to maybe circle back around to that. If I can, I'd like to just quote something from your site because I think it's important. And so you mentioned women make up less than 40% of the U.S. State Department's leadership and 26% at the Pentagon. And so my question focusing around, you know, equity, what are some key barriers that you have seen that women and and girls and, and others face when it comes to increasing representation? I mean, I, I think there's the the established ones that are documented in terms of unequal pay, unequal advancement, you know, promotion systems. But in my mind, what I think are the more important impediments are societal norms that still see girls and women as individuals who need to be protected and who don't serve in active security roles. I think that's still a norm that has been... Um, reiterated more recently in certain uh, commission reports and so forth. But I think what we try to really emphasize is the idea that girls and women from childhood live in a world in which they're taught to fear everything, whether that's real or perceived. And we do a really good job of keeping ourselves secure. Um, And if we fail to do so, it's not our fault. We're quite resilient in that way. So we try to really put the emphasis on girls and women already have this inherent skill set that they've been refining for decades by the time they get into their professional paths. And it's one that I still personally believe we fail to value. And I think that's very apparent. And as I noted, some of those representation barriers at the undergraduate level where Again, we hear this all the time from undergraduate mentees that they're not seeing women professors, they're not reading women's scholarship on technical issues or legal issues or policy issues. There's no dedicated support for their advancement. And so in my mind, it's quite simple. It's straightforward. If you want to see more girls and women, but also more underrepresented groups, you can't just expect that the status quo is suitable. You have to topple the apple cart, I think. And the way that we do that is going into the communities and bringing the opportunities that many of us didn't have to them so that girls who can't afford to fly to certain areas or who can't afford have a stipend and they can train as part of our program 
And then hopefully if the organization remains reputable and I don't screw it up somehow, it becomes a moment of pride for them on their resumes. And hopefully that pride and, you know, and the integrity of the organization and the mission can be something that uh, the community takes notice of in the long term and says they participated in this program. We know it's awesome. When it comes to to equity in in the in the cybersecurity industry, as well as I guess you know every industry really, right? When it when it comes to equity, there's a lack of that. And you mentioned the sort of status quo of today's societal norms when it comes to how things operate and how things function. Um, that status quo has been maintained by those who who hold the status quo. How do you get around that? How do you how do you go around that to sort of grassroots that effort, right? To infuse the new perspectives and change that status quo. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And hopefully we're doing it. Otherwise we're going to disappoint some people. But I think when I started this, I knew it would be the long run, which is a terrible sales pitch to to donors. You know, of course, there's easy metrics. You can show how many people participate and so forth. But I don't believe in that cultural change happens overnight. I think what we're seeing in our country is evidence of how long it takes to uproot any kind of systemic discrimination. So our belief is really putting the power in the voices of girls. And all our, our job is simply to say, here is how this field has been defined for you over the last, let's say 100 years, but you could certainly say thousands of years. What do you think of that? How do you think it should be defined? And then creating opportunities for their voices to be amplified. And for example, one of our high school partners wrote a letter to the National Security Council that was read before them, what they thought national security should mean. And so the more we're able to do that, do I think that, you know, the president is going to say national security should be called something else? Not necessarily, but I think, um, we're cultivating a generation of girls and women who will hopefully be more well represented in the near, short, and long term. And of course, our hope is that that results in more equitable national security policies, of which cyber is so crucial. It's everything from the development of the technology to its implementation, to the laws and policies around its usage. So I really do believe that in the aggregate, more girls understanding what national security means, more girls understanding cybersecurity, not just as a technical skill set, but more sort of this domain in which they exist on a regular basis is all good. Like no harm can come from that. But do I think that all of a sudden the status quo is going to change overnight? No, but I, I do think it will change. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. I wanted to ask about a phrase that I've seen in reference to some of the programs that Girl Security has. So trauma and equity informed programs. Can you explain what that means and and how that works in the programming? Yeah, I mean, so the trauma pieces, um, mostly trauma informed approaches are used in the classroom, but essentially what they do is they assume that you don't know anyone's lived experiences and you assume that everyone brings some kind of trauma into the room, the classroom or the room or online in a virtual environment. And so it really just informs a series of practices by which you create a safe kind of to your point earlier about trust, you create a safe environment in which people feel like their privacy and safety are valued, which I feel and we've seen has created a more comfortable space to talk about identity and national security or to talk about sexual harassment and national security. Because many, um, many of us bring that into a discussion about 
national security. And I would say, especially for girls in our program who come from areas of high violence, sexual trauma, gang violence, things like that, them knowing that we understand and are respecting and valuing those experiences is something that's really critical to building trust. And similarly with the equity frameworks as well. I mean, the the equity piece is, is along the same lines of trauma, which is valuing people's lived experiences, but also recognizing that the policies that we're talking about have historically resulted in inequitable results on certain communities. And that we just really need to create space for communities who maybe have negative associations with national security to talk about why that is and hopefully help shape better decisions going forward. And I think having a brother deployed was a really, it was a very impactful moment for my family. And I just, it's really this basic idea. What I always kept thinking was, is what if my mom was sitting at the table with these people making these decisions? What would that say? And I know that sounds so naive, but I think we're seeing it in Afghanistan where we're talking about the impact on girls and women or our immigration policy that's most you know disproportionately affecting Latino students in low-income areas. So we can do better. And I think it's just valuing individual experiences is a big part of it. I intimately relate to your brother being deployed. I was not specifically deployed, but I was in the Marine Corps myself. And so I went through boot camp in San Diego. When I was there, you get used to a particular way of operating. You get used to a particular way of how things are done. And, you know, if you think back on, if if I think back on that, um, a lot of those directives and a lot of those programs and a lot of those things that really drove the direction we went. Um, those things were specifically very much one one sided, right? You know, I don't I don't know of how many how many groups were designed around making appropriate decisions from an even keeled perspective or, you know, making appropriate decisions with multiple viewpoints taken into effect. And so when you had mentioned, you know, being at home, what would the decisions have been if your mother was at that table, right? Because that implies obviously that, that, you know, your mother has great sense and your mother could impose that sense on, you know, maybe the process of communications and deciding things. And I think that's exceedingly important and goes to the very heart of what we've just been talking about this whole time, which is, you know, diversity and the groups that make the decisions and the lack thereof. Yeah. She's also Italian. And so she get really angry. <laughs> so I'm not sure that Rumsfeld would have had uh, much to stand on if Barb had been in the room. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that is the essence of it is the national security decision-making process is a process and it's one that very few people understand. And that I think has been historically by design, but we're not in that place anymore. You know, ransomware attacks and all of these different cyber challenges that are uprooting our sense of privacy and what that looks like. What does it look like to be secure in this world? And I think that transparency that a lot of women in our space talk about is is really important. We really need to be talking more about that now, I think. What are some of that, maybe, you know, a representation of what technical things you all can offer and then the additional, maybe not so technical things that are really good for, you know, maybe policy and governance and, you know, something along those routes? Yes. I mean, as I said earlier, the more technical, I would say, is things like ethical hacking. 
where it's still not even technical, it's more strategic. And so that's where we kind of focus our competencies is um, we focus on ethics, critical thinking, strategy, uh, collaboration, and logistics. So really trying to we really try to draw on the competencies girls already have so that they don't feel like they have to necessarily even acquire a new skill to do these jobs. It's more so just drawing out the skills and things that they do on a regular basis and show them how those skills already fit into many different pathways and national security. So we do things like, you know, we talk about, we do instruction on national security law. We do discussion on writing policy briefs um, and training on writing policy briefs. We do sessions on intelligence analysis that runs across the INS. We do things on war gaming. Uh, So we really touch on a lot of the different elements of national security the more traditional ones. And then we also talk about, we do sessions on identity and national security. So what does it mean to identify in the space and how does your identity shape national security understanding? We talk about diplomacy. We talk about women, peace, and security. So we really try to provide a very multidisciplinary menu for these girls because it's- Those things are so important. They are. They're so important. They're good. Girls are- ethical they they're collaborative they think critically they they're adaptive they already have these things that we know as professionals we need more of in our professional in our professional workforce so i think you know my only hesitation when starting this was i didn't want girls to feel like they were like tracked into a career like you said you wanted to be in the cia you know you have to it's it's peek your head in you know look around and see what might interest you and those skills can apply to so many different areas too i wanted to ask about something that you so you mentioned sort of like an identity conscious approach to working in national security and in my personal experience have bringing my own identity to work is something that i've sort of struggled with and seen a lot of other uh you know people in general struggle with this concept of of how does my identity fit in a professional setting. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about like why talking about that is important. What are some of the the lessons that come out of that, that approach? And I think we all struggle with that all of the time, which is why talking about it is helpful. I think it depends on the participants, right? So some of our younger participants, it might be the first time they're even thinking about their identity at all. Uh, How are the ways in which you identify among family or peers or, you know, community or groups? What does that look like? What does that feel like to you? And sometimes it's actually the first time they're thinking about it. Uh, And even sometimes it's the first time they're thinking about their identity and relationship to their security experiences. You know, sometimes we have girls who for the first time are thinking about the fact that they have to park in a lit parking lot uh, as a, a connection to their gender or however else they identify for the first time. I think for some of the more kind of mature audiences that we engage with, it's uh, talking about identity, normalizing it, and understanding that the experiences that we have as a result of our identity are valuable to, I think, what we've been talking about, which is like cognitive diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of problem solving and innovating. So I think for us, it's really just about creating the space to talk about how our identity shapes our contributions, how it shapes our experiences. And I think building confidence in those spaces to then, as you know, bring your experience to the table in a professional setting, which I think we really struggle with that, but I don't know that it's, um, I don't know if it's specific to women. Right before this recording, I sent a message to everyone, like the, the 
the team on our side. And I said, I don't know if it makes sense for me to bring up my personal experience because I don't know much about national security. <laughs> of course you do. You live in the United States. You're a global <laughs> citizen. You know everything about national security, right? But it's like that mindset, right? Of like, wait a minute. How does my, like, do I have the right experience? Do I have the right identity to be in this, to be in this space, in this conversation? And I'm like, there's a, there's an example right there. <laughs> I think national security is one of the most important areas in which everyone identity has a place in a discussion about national security because it's the most consequential field in the world. I mean, every decision we make in the name of national security has had significant implications. And I think as we start to see the ways in which the threat environment advances online and offline, especially as women and and other underrepresented or marginalized communities, our identity, whether we like it or not, is playing an increasingly important central role in things like disinformation and so forth. So I think it's really wonderful that you would want to bring your identity into it or your experience. And I think, honestly, my own experiences are what shaped, it's what started me to start this. And I felt the same when I started it. it was like, is anyone going to have these same experiences? But even if your experiences are different, you're just creating that space to share them. And I think that's pretty powerful. So yeah, I think it's that that that's the mindset that I have to constantly remind myself and like unlearn all of the, you know, doubt that I think has entered my brain over the years. Um <laughs> but so I wanted to ask you something sort of unreal I mean related to what we've been talking about, but slight topic change. So um, recent, I saw some some videos that the CIA and the U.S. Army recently released, some ad campaigns that featured sort of diverse individuals highlighting their experience uh, as, as like recruitment videos. And I know that Girl Security posted a like a response to that. And I guess my my question is what are ways that this the that the US government and, and other entities are making progress and and getting it right in this kind of, you know, recruiting and things like that. I think what's so frustrating about the ads or the backlash to the ads was how many people see that backlash and how it, it gives breath. And we actually kind of went back and forth about whether or not we should issue a statement because sometimes I just think it's not worth it. But we had a lot of mentees reach out with feelings and therefore it felt like it felt like something that needed to be said. And I also think it was just another example of misogyny, you know, using words like pansies. I mean, these are these are very discriminatory, very uh, derogative terms that that people are using. So I think as far as the recruitment ads, whether you like it or not, and I think we said this in our statement, it's attempting to reach a different audience, which I think in and of itself is positive. Now, one can speculate about the motivations and all those other things, and that's a whole nother conversation. But but the ads themselves represented a different demographic and a different set of experiences, which I felt were positive. I definitely think under this administration, we're seeing some positive signs, right? There's a much more diverse set of political appointees. I think in the military, they're talking about diversity. They're talking about racism and systemic racism. So I think these conversations are happening. You know, they've recently and are still convening the Commission on Sexual Assault and Harassment in the military. I think there's areas, certainly in the intelligence community, that aren't as transparent. Parent. I think the private sector is a, um, we haven't turned our, our target there yet. And I think we need to be talking about what women's experiences are like in the private security sector. I think there are implications of progress, but for the same reasons, girl security is a long-term project. I think it's, it's going to take time to change the culture. Bella, you brought up um, some of the ads. Um, 
But those who are listening who may not be quite as familiar with those particular ads, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, Lauren, if you wouldn't mind shedding some light on what those ads were maybe necessarily about. Sure. Well, one of the, uh, both the military and the CIA issued ads, I think within weeks of each other. And one uh, depicted an intelligence officer who was being very candid about her upbringing, very candid about her experience as a mother, kind of how to balance different burdens, talking about kind of mental health and other struggles. And the military ad was a young woman who had two mothers and was kind of telling the story about how her experience with her mothers shaped her kind of career aspirations. And actually the army ad I thought was kind of cool because it integrated like a cartoon, basically like a graphic novel feel to it. And so the response was essentially, you know, the intelligence community and the military have gone woke. Uh, This is not the type of lethality we want to be projecting to our adversaries, including Russia. And also in those same tweets, they reposted Russian recruitment ads, which is interesting, and referenced Jason Bourne. You know, we want a, a fictional male character to secure our nation. And so the backlash has been pretty widespread. I think what I find a bit frustrating about some of the backlash is that it's this is bad because we're giving our enemies fodder and not necessarily this is bad because it's really just bad to say things like, you know, the the things that were said in response to those ads. I watched some of them knowing some of the backlash and it was interesting to to watch them and like feel myself be like, oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Like as a young person, if I were watching this, I would be like, maybe this is what I want to do, you know? And it's so interesting to think that like, like you said, the the backlash the it's it's out there. I think as much as the videos are, and like, what would that mean if I were a young person and I watched the video and then I heard the backlash? Like, how would that impact my my reaction to it? They are, and I mean, we have young women in the military in our program, and um, boy, it just makes me really upset because these young women are signing up for service uh, to their nation, and I think. Uh, to make assumptions about their capabilities first and foremost, but to make assumptions about their capabilities because of their gender identity when women have been contributing to this space for a very long time. It's just unnecessary. I don't know how else to say it. It's just unnecessary. I wanted to ask you a question that I, like involves talking about my own personal experience a little bit. So, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about um, kind of the idea of getting young women and girls interested in these fields at a younger age, giving them exposure and doing that by, you know, bringing the professionals to them, like showing them women who are in the field, uh, women professors, things like that. Sometimes I see this idea of like representation. It's so important. I absolutely know that in my own personal life, the moments where I realized that I was capable of things were, were when I saw people like me doing them. Representation absolutely matters. But something that I've experienced now sort of on the other side of things as a professional in the field, I think sometimes it's frustrating when I feel like I am involved in things because I'm a woman exclusively, or the value that I bring is only because of my identity. I was thinking about wanting to ask this question, thinking about examples of this in my career. And there was a time where I was interviewing for a job and uh, it was it was a pretty casual interview. At the end, I was talking with one of the people that had interviewed me and he was chatting and said like, oh, you did great. Uh, I think you'd be such a great fit here and you're a girl. So that's cool. And it was really frustrating for me because I felt like, well, 
am I a good fit because I'm smart and because I'm technically competent? Or am I a good fit because of my identity? How do we instill in young women and girls the idea that they belong without making it feel like they belong only because of their identity or exclusively because of their identity? And I think that's a really important question. And I think your experience is, you know, you're not alone in having had that experience. And, you know, what we always try to say is, is that uh, equity is more about equality. It's more about, it's more than just the numbers. And I think what we're really talking about is shifting norms in which women and other groups their experiences are valued. So less about the identity piece and more about emphasis on add value in the individual. But I think for us as an organization, part of shifting that norm requires a discussion about identity because we learn from your experiences, how is someone's identity shaping what experiences they have or what experiences they might be prohibited from having? And so I think for girls and young women, again, the way that we approach it is, first of all, saying you belong in this space. And many women have existed and performed and served in these different capacities. But more importantly, you already have the skills that you need. You already have the skills that this field values, and you're really good at these things because you've already had all of these awesome or trying experiences, depending upon what someone brings to the room. So I think the message should be and feels very simple. It's hitting home. You belong in this space. You're needed in this space. Um, But more importantly, we don't know what a national security field would look like where there's gender uh, parity, or we like to say gender majority. What would national security look like if women uh, and others were co-equally represented? Um, I want to see what that world looks like. I wanted to end with more focus on sort of girl security and what girl security has in store in the future. So first of all, congratulations on winning third place in the Gula Tech Foundations competition. Uh, and and so I know that you received some a grand, a grand prize of $200,000, which is super exciting. How does this change the future of girl security? It was really transformative for us because I had long wanted to offer a stipend for our programming. We really want girls to start valuing their time sooner. And so we're able to do a stipend in programming. That's a dedicated program for girls of color in Chicago. Uh, It was interesting. The school thought they might get 20 or 25 girls. We had 175 girls sign up. Needless to say, we couldn't accommodate all of them this turn. So we're building That's incredible. It is. From one school. One school. That's what's even more remarkable. And uh, we're doing a really awesome three-day session with them, uh, women all over the world calling in on AI ethics and uh, ethical hacking and intelligence, as I noted. And we have some great key st- keynote speakers. So we have that in the works. We're doing programming with the Girl Scouts on national security and cyber. Uh, this summer, we have a week-long training program with the U.S. Naval Sea Cadets, which will also be amazing. We have a five-day training program. Uh, they get to design their own challenge coin and do all of these other really cool things that the services do. Uh, And then in the fall, because of the Gula Tech Grant, we'll be able to offer a stipend as part of our fellowship, which is basically a much more robust version of our summer empowerment programs. It's a six-month program. Uh, Girls create a capstone. We're hoping for more corporate partners who will give them kind of a virtual day in the office and things like that. So uh, that, that grant was really pivotal for us because we've you know, we're still very much a startup in ways. And so to have that kind of investment right now uh, was just really a lifeline. And on top of that, Ron and Cindy Gula are amazing people who are going above and beyond to get 
the organizations that won in front of lots and lots of people, which is, it's, it's amazing. I don't know how else to say it. It's just amazing. That's awesome. That's when you, when you described the number of girls that applied, I literally got goosebumps. That's so exciting. And it goes to show like, like it's that, it's that idea of, I remember being young and no one ever expecting me to, to be interested in math, be interested in technology. And it's like, no, girls like this too. Hello. (laughs) Uh, That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. And I think too, you know, for some of these girls, uh, you know, we got emails saying like, if we didn't have a stipend, I couldn't attend because I'm working, my parents rely on me for money. So even if it's, you know, a few hundred dollars, it's a few hundred dollars that matters a lot. And why shouldn't we do that? And I think the whole idea of charging young people for training programs is, is wrong. It's just wrong. If you could discuss more about maybe how um, individuals or groups or others who would like to, you know, hear more, see more, help jump in, get involved, you know, I don't know, do something. How can they do that? Well, I mean, the easy way is if you know a girl or a woman who's involved, she can sign up at the website to be mentored, to apply to the fellowship program, to participate in our professional development workshops. There's lots of different entry points for the organization. But I think the thing that I always try to tell people is when, if you have a girl or woman in your life who's kind of seeking careers, just tell her that she can go into this field and she can be really good at it and be supportive because I think people would be surprised at how, especially for men in these girls' lives, if their father or brother or some trusted person says like, you don't want to go into that field because it's male dominated, which by the way, happens a lot. That has an impact on that, that girl's prospect of her own prospects. And so I think it's really important to just to be part of the change around normalizing and valuing women in security broadly, whether it's cybersecurity or national security or any other type of, of security. So that's the, the harder, but seemingly more accessible way to, to be part of the organization. So we have just one last question for you, hopefully an easy one. Uh, so we, we asked this question of, of new hires at Synac whenever they join, what is one thing that no one would, would know about you just from looking at your online profiles like LinkedIn or your website? Probably that I'm really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think I can 100% relate to that. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. I think that you're in the right yes, spot. <laughs> I think like I'm hearing my husband voice being like, if people knew how weird you were. Um, so probably how weird I am. I think that would probably be the one thing people wouldn't know about me. That's great. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Lauren. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. This is a great conversation. And I'm happy that it was a conversation because that, that made it a lot more fun for, for me as well. Do you know which industries are most hardened against cyber attacks? How does your sector stack up when it comes to finding and fixing vulnerabilities? Are you doing enough to ensure you don't lose your customer's trust? It can vanish in an instant due to a breach or a cyber attack. Synax 2021 Trust Report is your essential guide to understanding how industries measure up when it comes to security preparedness. Download it today at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com.